0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Lou, the host of Love Me, a CBC Podcast about the messiness of human connection. Our brand new season is coming soon, featuring deeply personal stories, like a man who becomes obsessed with a mysterious painting, two brothers stuck sharing a room again as adults, and a note slipped into the back pocket of someone's jeans that leads to a surprising late-night encounter. Subscribe at cbc.ca slash loveme, or wherever you get your podcasts. The new season launches November 13th. Hey.
2: Danse, Anine, boujou, hello, and welcome. This is the standard greeting that I give you every week on the show, and they are different ways of saying hello in Indigenous languages. Dance is Cree, Anin is Anishinaabe, and Boujou is Michif. This is unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Language holds culture, history, and identity. But for many Indigenous nations, language was stripped from them in residential schools, putting many in danger of being silenced forever. But now we are hearing those words again. They are being featured on films, spoken in classrooms, and in songs.
3: The feeling I got when I first spoke the first couple words of my language was just, it made me feel like I belonged.
1: When I
4: was in the residential school, we weren't allowed to talk
1: our language at all. We have a word for Facebook in Hawaiian, Alo. Puke is buck, and alo means face, so again, Directly from the English word Facebook.
3: I don't think we'll
0: ever go back to our traditional
3: way of speaking. For me, the language is living and it's and it's it's growing. So let's invest
2: in that excitement. Today on Radio Indigenous, the revitalization and evolution of indigenous languages. I told you about that movie when it played at the Toronto International Film Festival this fall. Edge of the Knife is the first feature film made entirely in the Haida language. Today, the Haida language is spoken fluently by only 24 people. But there are many more who are learning. Sefenia Jones was an actor in the film. I've reached her at home in Masset on Haida Gwaii. Sefenia, welcome. Awa, awa. Now, you and the other actors spoke Haida in in the movie, Edge of the Knife. Did you grow up speaking your language?
4: No, we, we weren't allowed to. When I was younger, they, there was an Indian agent that came here and uh, talked to our grandfathers and whatnot and said that it was against the law for them now to teach us our language. It would be better off for us to be taught English. They'd be thrown in jail if they were caught um, teaching us Haida.
2: Do you remember Mm. when you were first told that you weren't allowed to learn the language?
4: Oh, it must have been about, about four or five years old. They
2: hardly ever spoke Haida
4: around us when we were growing up. They only talked amongst themselves when they were doing things like cutting fish up and stuff like that. But other than that, no. It's such a sad thing too because it's such a beautiful language.
2: Mhm. Had yeah. you had you thought about wanting to learn Haida as you grew up?
4: No. No desire to uh learn it. Not no, I shouldn't say no desire. I was scared to mainly because when I was in the residential school, we weren't allowed to talk our language at all and I was with this little girl, she was teaching me Cree. And we got caught, and we both got punished for it. And I had three of my fingernails taken out on account of it. And I was never, ever, ever, I never had, you know, I was too scared to to talk any language, really.
2: Mm.
4: We were punished very severely.
2: So when you were a child and you were caught uh, speaking your language, you're telling me your fingernails yeah. were pulled out as punishment.
4: Yeah, this happened in Edmonton in the residential school.
2: And how that old were you that stuff, when that happened?
4: 11, 11, 12 years old, somewhere around there. And I went to Edmonton and I went to Port Alberni.
5: Hmm.
4: In Edmonton, it was like um, a prison. They had bars on the windows mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And... We were all numbered. They didn't use our names there. The staff didn't use our names. We all had numbers on our clothing. So we were all called by our numbers, never our names. And I was 702. Hmm.
2: So Fenia to prepare your, for your role in Edge of the Knife, you and the other actors went into a language camp. What was that experience like? How did it feel when you first were able to speak Haida again?
4: staff, they had a whole bunch of them come in to teach us Haida. Oh, there must have been about five or six of them, and they were teaching us our own language. I could understand a little bit, but I can't answer. Like, I can answer them in English, but I can't answer them in Haida.
2: Can you take me back to that room, Sifania, when you were sitting there and and able to speak with other people this language that you had been punished for speaking before? What did that feel like for you?
4: Oh, I was dancing and singing. I'm still dancing and singing. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know any Haida songs yet, but I'm learning. It's all just chanting and whatnot, and I got 19 grandchildren, mm-hmm. and I got 16 great ones, and they're learning. Mm. They're learning the Haida language. They come to me now, and they say uh, a little bit, and they ask me if I know what they're saying, and I say no, and they, we giggle about it, <laughs> and then they say it in English what it means. But they're they are learning, and I'm so very thankful that they have that in the schools now. It took them a long time, but they eventually started to do that in the school. I'm so grateful that it's not going to die. Mm-hmm. I was really, really afraid that we were going to have a dying culture because we weren't allowed to um, hide a dance and stuff like that. This was in the 60s. We were still putting cardboard up on our windows so that they wouldn't see us hide right at dancing and
2: singing. Hmm. I understand that uh, you used to sing a song when you were little, that you, then you weren't allowed to sing anymore. Do you remember how it goes? Yes. Can you sing it
4: ah, for me? me? I don't know what it means in English. I really don't. I have to ask somebody that knows.
2: But it still I lives am, in your heart, I, and that's beautiful.
4: Oh, oh uh, yeah! My great grandmother used to sing that to me mm. when I was about three, four years old. Yeah.
2: And now yeah. you're singing it to yours.
4: Yes, yes, yes.
2: Well, thank you for speaking mm. with me today, Sephania. You're welcome.
4: Love to you later. Bye.
2: Love you later. Sophenia Jones was an actor in *Edge of the Knife*, the first feature film made entirely in the Haida language. We reached her in Massett, Haida Gwaii. This is unreserved on CBC Radio One and Sirius XM One Sixty Nine. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Endangered, extinct, dying—these are just some of the words used to describe what has happened to Indigenous languages. But is it hindering instead of helping?
1: Some of the terms that are used within, say, headlines um, may not actually reflect what is going on in community or maybe are terms that could, in fact, maybe harm.
2: Rethinking how we talk about Indigenous languages coming up in just a few minutes. But first, exciting news! If you subscribe to our podcast, you might have noticed something new pop up in your feed this week. It's called First Words, a brand new podcast brought to you by the team here at Unreserved, and it's all about Indigenous languages. Each episode, the guest of the week will tell you a bit about their language, how they learned it, and teach you a few words. Let's take a listen to the very first episode of First Words.
3: My name's Logan Stotts, I'm Mohawk, Turtle Clan, Haudenosaunee, and I'm from Six Nations, and the language there is Mohawk. To me, language means, you know, communication, it means tradition, and, uh, you know, it means reclamation. I started learning, you know, just recently, you know, a lot of people from Six Nations and in that area, um, their great-grandparents attended residential school. So a lot of that was stripped away from them and and ripped out of their hands. So a lot of us coming from that area are on this journey of reclamation, you know. And language is a big part of that. And I remember talking to my mother and being and saying a word in Mohawk, and I was I remember how that made me feel, you know. So every time I say one of these words, you know. Um, it brings me back to that moment of when I, when I first kind of started experiencing the language and the culture, you know, when I was speaking Mohawk, the feeling I got when I first spoke the first couple words of my language was just, it made me feel like I belonged somewhere, you know, it made me feel like I knew where I was supposed to be and where I came from, you know, so Physically, it was just feelings of warmth and and acceptance. And that's why those words are so important to me. And not only that, um, you know, those are words that I'm able to use day to day. So the process of reclamation inside my music, you know, like I said, my great-grandparents attended residential school, you know, so I was... um, My grandparents were terrified of experiencing the culture and terrified of even expressing their identity. You know, so growing up, I didn't go to school on the reservation. I went to school in an urban setting, which was challenging because inside the urban setting, I was still the native guy with the long hair, the dark skin and the brown eyes. But then, at home, on Six Nations, I didn't really fit in because I didn't know all the teachings and the tradition, you know? So there was this time in my life where I really didn't know where I belonged. And music was always one place that was always home for me, you know? So you'll hear that process of reclamation in my voice, and you'll hear that struggle and that pain when I sing and I play. It's in every chord that I play and every note that I sing. Um, so really, you know, reclamation is the driving force behind all my music. I have a nine-year-old little girl named Riley, who's, uh, you know, my pride and my joy and, uh, the best song that I've ever written. I've taught Riley the basics, you know, like say I go and, um, how to say thank you and how to say I love you and stuff like that. Um, but she's just getting to the age right now, you know, where I'm able to kind of talk to her about culture, you know, and I'm able to kind of explore how beautiful it is with her. Um, a couple of days ago, I played with Buffy St. Marie for two nights, and I was able to bring her to the show and sit her on my lap and put her in front of one of the most amazing, you know, Native women who's ever existed. So I'm just getting to the point, and she's just getting to the age, you know, where I'm able to share that with her. To me that's one of the biggest priorities that i have you know not only with my own daughter but i think with a lot of the youth that are coming up right now um it's just something that i try to instill in them is because experiencing my culture and experiencing its beauty and uh really basking in it is something that's truly saved my life and and changed the road that i was on you know so uh, i go to a lot of different communities across turtle island and um that's one of the tools that I give these kids and give these youth to break through these walls, you know, is just get out there and experience your culture. Get out there and learn your culture and learn your traditions. I'm still in the process of learning. You know, I'm still in the process of, of taking back the language, you know, and it's, it's something that takes a lot of hard work and a lot of dedication and, um, In the Mohawk language, there's lots of just subtle accents that are really tough, like there's like this soft kind of NG in there, you know, that was hard for me to kind of get down at the beginning. So that was probably my most difficult word, you know, and I'm still in the process of wrapping my head around the language and taking it in, you know, so I'm sure I'll have a lot more information for you in that regard down the road. I'm Logan Stotts, and the first word I'm going to say for you is "Sego," which is how you greet someone in the Mohawk language. The second word I'm going to say to you is which is I love you, which is a very important word in the Mohawk language. And the third word I'm going to say to you is which is thank you in the Mohawk language. I, I'm going to close off with saying which is how you say goodbye in the Mohawk language.
2: That was musician Logan Stotts talking about the Mohawk language, the first episode in our brand new podcast, First Words. If you want to hear more episodes with guests sharing words in their languages, head over to cbc.ca slash podcasting or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to ours. Then every Tuesday, you'll get a brand new episode of First Words, our Indigenous language podcast. When stories about Indigenous languages are covered in the media, there are certain words that we often hear, words like reclaimed and revitalized, but also words like endangered, extinct, and dying. Does how we talk about language affect how it's perceived? Candice Gala works at the University of British Columbia where she's associate faculty in the Institute for Critical Indigenous Studies and an assistant professor in the Department of Language and Literacy Education. She is Native Hawaiian and I've reached her at her office in Vancouver. Hello, Candice. Aloha. Let's talk about how we frame conversations about Indigenous language. In your classroom, how do you and your students talk about language and how it's framed in media?
1: Well, this semester I'm teaching in the First Nations and Endangered Languages program. And it's an introduction to endangered language documentation and revitalization. And every day in class, we start off with language news And so what are some things that we've heard about within the last week um, in regards to Indigenous and endangered languages? And some of the conversation that has come up is how some of the terms that are used within, say, headlines um, may not actually reflect what is going on in community. So, you know, some of the words that you just mentioned, revitalize, reclaim, strengthen, some words like, maybe language extinction or language death. You know, we know indigenous languages have been around for such a long time, but we also know what has been published in say textbooks about indigenous languages or indigenous peoples isn't always accurate. And sometimes the language that's used talks about language extinction, where in fact, the language is still thriving and so when, you know, Indigenous students are reading these texts, whether it's in media or whether it's in book form, this can be very challenging or problematic for students coming from these communities because, in fact, they still exist. And so this just becomes this challenging narrative that, that you see uh, perpetuated in, in different forms of writing.
2: Hmm. Can you give me an example of the impact of using this kind of language when talking about Indigenous cultures has?
1: Yeah, so I share um, one example with my students. I I experienced this when I was a graduate student at the University of Arizona. We gathered for a language institute. On the very first day of class, we uh, introduced ourselves, and one of um, my colleagues She shared that when she was a young child, she read in a history textbook just a paragraph about her particular community, referring to the community as extinct. And she started becoming very emotional, and she says, how can we be extinct if I'm still here?
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How should we be talking about Indigenous language? What kind of um, words would you prefer to be hearing?
1: Well, I think, you know, there's, there's often this deficit kind of talk about indigenous languages, whether it's extinction or decline. But if we look at what has been happening across the world, in regards to indigenous language reclamation or revitalization, um, language learning and teaching, there's so many positive things that have been happening. And so we can focus on that instead of focusing on the decline of language. I think the decline of language is important in some cases because it brings awareness to an audience that may not be familiar with Indigenous languages.
2: When we talk about um, Indigenous languages growing and evolving and taking up these spaces, um, in what ways do you see new words becoming a part of Indigenous languages?
1: I think that's a really interesting question with... Languages being revitalized, you know, I should say that that there isn't a consensus, sometimes within community, on how to deal with new terminology. But within the Hawaiian community, there is a Hawaiian lexicon committee that meets on a quarterly basis, I believe, and is made up of representatives from different islands that are language speakers, uh, professors, and elders of the community. And they meet to create new words. Um, An example, not necessarily a new word, but a relevant word. So computer. So we have two words in Hawaiian. One is kamepula. And so that's borrowed directly from English. Sounds very similar. Uh, But the other word is lolo And the first word refers to brains. And the second refers to... Electric or electricity, and so in fact the the second word lolo wila, is more of a description of that particular concept of a computer. The creation of new words is really important for the Hawaiian community and our Hawaiian language revitalization movement because we have a growing number of Hawaiian language speakers.
2: Candice, when you talk about um, the evolution of language, and you gave a great example of computer in, in, in the Hawaiian language, and now that we're seeing uh, more and more young people um, going back and learning their language, do you think that there is a responsibility or a movement um, for these young people or by these young people to create these new words like smartphone? And
1: You know, when we think of youth learning language, youth are very creative and what we find in Hawaii is sometimes we're searching for a word maybe as adults who are maybe second language learners of Hawaiian, but in fact the youth, because they're growing up with the language, they already have a term for it. And so, you know, we can really look to our youth to not only inspire us, but see how they are actually communicating in language. We have a word word for Facebook in Hawaiian called alo, but puke is book and alo means face. So again, directly from the English word Facebook. So again, if we could describe it, maybe it would be something different. But again, I think it's really important for us to think about being creative in language. I think it's really exciting to see how the language can grow and that language that we can still be steadfast in our language and in our culture, but also be creative and innovative in our language as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Candice, ginasak which means thank you in Cree for talking with me today.
1: Mahalo nui loa. Thank you very much.
2: Candice Gala works at the University of British Columbia, where she's associate faculty in the Institute for Critical Indigenous Studies and an assistant professor in the Department of Language and Literacy Education. She is Native Hawaiian. The technology we use in our daily lives runs smoothly because of programming language. C++, C Sharp, and Java are just a few of the popular programming languages out there. But did you ever think that these type of languages might exclude people who don't speak English? Well, a team of Hawaiian programmers did. So they decided to rewrite C-sharp in Olelo Hawaiian. Kari Noe is one of the programmers, and she joins me from Oahu. Welcome, Kari. Hello, there. So why did you and the rest of your team decide that C-sharp needed to be rewritten in Olelo Hawaiian?
6: For a lot of us. Since we all are computer programmers, we have to. We know that when we have to code, we have to leave our language. We have to go and we have to learn it in English. For me, as a professional, when I have to work on projects and when I speak, there there actually is not a lot of words in Hawaiian for not just C sharp but computer. I mean, general computer science terms. Mm-hmm. So we're also creating uh, and translating words so that we can create an new Hawaiian words, a new language, so that we can use that language, so that we can speak about these computer science terms and methods and all that kind of thing, so that we can, once again, not have to leave our language to be able to populate, to be able to work in the computer science field.
2: How challenging was it to translate from English to your language?
6: Well, currently, we're still in the process of translating. There are a lot of C-sharp terms, and there are a lot of just general computer science terms that we all finding relate to these terms but they need to be translated as well. It's difficult for us because of course we all do not want to translate the words just directly so just Mm -hmm. taking the English and then finding the Hawaiian equivalent. We would like to translate the words in a way that is not it's not not just direct translation it allows a Hawaiian way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. So I guess the best way I can describe this is that The last meeting, we were talking about how to uh, translate if-else statements. An if-else statement is basically if some condition is met, it will do this line of code. And if it's not met, it will do another line of code. And so we were thinking, and we didn't really want to translate it directly of if, like the word for if and the word for else. So uh, Kiana and I came up with this idea of having if be kahawai, which kahawai in Hawaiian Mean a river mm-hmm. so the the idea is that in an if-else statement there's a possibility of diverging through different conditionals to get to somewhere else or the else would be mulivi which mulivi is like the mouth of the river so once you get through these if conditionals there is a possibility of getting to this else conditional where you finally get to the end of the river mm-hmm. so it's these concepts that are very Hawaiian, so most people know that concept of a river and how it works in the different parts of the river. But basically, having these these things that are a very Hawaiian-based ideas help illustrate or help when you, when you hear the words, when you hear the translated words, you know that F means this. But it will describe how any kind of these structure like data structures, any kind of these things that are in the code. We're trying to also translate them so that they fit some. Hawaiian way of thinking or something Mm -hmm. that will make more sense to a Hawaiian speaker. One of the things that we always focus on is that when you teach C-Sharp or you teach programming to kids, it's actually very hard for them to learn a lot of these concepts in computer science. So we're also hoping that our translations will help them understand it rather than just trying to remember these English words and what they do.
2: Hmm. Now, uh, I understand that most programming is written in the English language with Western worldviews. How has that become problematic for, you know, programmers and kids who are trying to learn programming?
6: It really forces the kids to leave their language and go and have to learn English. And for us, for Hawaiians and the goals of immersion school, We don't really want them to leave their language because Mm. they're still trying to learn their language because it's very important because, I mean, Hawaiian is on the uprise recently, but before it was dying and so no one was using it. And so one of the main problems is that a lot of people need more reasons to use it Mm. rather than just at home or in school. So one of the reasons why we're also pushing to have olala hawaii in programming olala programming is because we want to have another way that students and that hawaiian speakers can use hawaiian language Mm -hmm. and so it just makes the overall field of computer science more accessible to students and more accessible to hawaiian uh, language users
2: do you think that'll it increase interest in computer programming if it's more accessible and people don't have to leave their their culture and language to do it
6: I, I really hope so. I feel like that uh, along with it just being Hawaiian, the way that I described how we're going along translating will also help in making it more accessible because hopefully it will make the ideas and the, the structure of computer science a bit more accessible to Hawaiian students. hmm
2: now, as you said, you are just in the beginning stages of creating uh, this language. What are you going to do with it when once it's done?
6: Well, we're still talking about that. Right now we're in a stage where, uh, overall, we just want to make it accessible to anybody who wants to use it. Maybe they don't have to be a Hawaiian language speaker, but also they could just be interested in another way to learn Hawaiian because there's a lot of Hawaiian kids learning Hawaiian later in their life.
2: So not only is it helping grow the programming community, it's helping to grow the language-speaking community. That is the hope. That is one of the hopes, yes. Well, that's amazing, Kari. Thank you so much for sharing that with me today. Thank you. That was Kari Noe. She is a Hawaiian programmer who is creating a program language similar to C-sharp in the Alelo Hawaiian language. One musician who weaves his traditional language into his music is Polaris Prize winner Jeremy Dutcher. He went digging through the archives at the Canadian Museum of History and found 100-year-old wax cylinder recordings of traditional Wallistic Way songs. And I really
3: struggle with this because a lot of people want to want to frame this as you know singing in my dying language, and you know the, all the, always this uh, narrative of like death my and and you know dying language. But for me, the language is living, and it's and it's it's growing. So let's invest in that excitement. For me, that's that's one narrative that I think is really really important out of this whole project too. Is 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 honoring all of those people that are doing the important work of language revitalization and supporting the young people that really want to learn uh, yeah. but maybe don't have the access to resources.
2: This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM 169. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Talking all about how Indigenous languages are evolving on the show today, one of the things driving that evolution is new speakers who are picking up their traditional language as adults and teaching their kids as they learn. It's a common theme we're hearing on First Words, our new podcast about Indigenous language, I'm going to play you a sneak listen to next week's episode. Let's see who's sitting in the hosting chair.
5: Hi, my name is Wab Rice. I'm a member of the Bear Clan of the Nishnabek of Wissaksing. I currently live in Sudbury, Ontario, but uh, I grew up in my community, which is about an hour and a half south of here near Perry Sound, Ontario. I work as the host of Up North on CBC Radio 1, that's the afternoon radio show for all of Northern Ontario, and I'm also an author. Uh, My latest novel, Moon of the Crested Snow, was just published this week. The first word I remember hearing in my language is probably ani, which means hi, Uh, and the second one would have been bojo, which is a more formal way of saying hi. And then miigwech. That's a common one that a lot of people have probably heard. It just means thanks. So basically greetings and thanks, which are pretty crucial in any language, but uh, especially meaningful, I think, in Anishinaabemowin or the Ojibwe language. I first started learning probably in elementary school. I heard the language all around me when I was very young. I grew up in my community and... The language is spoken fluently by elders uh, and the generation, I guess my dad's generation and people older. Um, But at that time, there was still quite the shame attached to speaking the language thanks to residential schools and the Indian Act and and day schools and other oppressive and assimilative measures. So I heard it pretty regularly, but I didn't always understand it because people didn't converse with us, uh, the younger generation. Going to school, once, you know, we entered kindergarten, that was part of the curriculum, having, you know, a half hour or an hour of Ojibwe language every day, but even that isn't enough to really establish fluency in anybody and if it's not being spoken in the home then it's not going to really stick i don't think so the language is something that's always been there for me it's there are words that i've consistently heard throughout my life there are phrases and dialogue that i understand as a result of that but i'm nowhere fluent and that's due to a lot of a lot of reasons One of my favorite terms in Nishnabemowin is minobamadzwin, which basically means good life or living well. And it's more of an ideology, I think, that a lot of uh, Nishinaabe people apply to their lives. You know, you carry yourself in a good way, you treat others respectfully and kindly, and you make sure that you treat yourself in a good way and that you live healthily. So minobamadzwin is probably my favorite term or, or word in, in Ojibwe or Nishnabemowin. The fun thing about having a toddler, you know, a little guy who's learning how to speak, is you really put the focus on different kinds of fun words uh, that he's going to learn. So I think some of my favorite words are just some of that basic vocabulary, like wawashkish means deer and makwa means bear. And these are fun things to show him. And then we'll ask him in the language, you know, anishkido nimoshna. So, what does the dog say? And he'll go, ruff, ruff, ruff. I'm Wabgija Grace, and your words for today are Ani, which means hi, Minobamadzwin, which means the good life or living well, and Miigwech, which means thank you.
2: Wabgija Grice is a CBC Radio host in Sudbury and an author. His latest book, Moon of the Crusted Snow, is out now. If you want to hear more episodes of First Words, our brand new podcast all about Indigenous languages, subscribe to the Unreserved podcast and a new episode with a new guest host will pop up in your feed every Tuesday. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM 169. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild. And just want to let you know about an exciting show we have coming up. Make sure you tune in on December 16th for a special concert episode of Unreserved with the one and only William Prince.
0: But I love you now like I loved you then. Every day. You
2: heard it here first, so mark your calendars and make sure you tune in on December 16th. Between the Yukon and Alaska, there are about 160 fluent speakers of the Tlingit language. Twenty of them live in Teslin, Yukon. In mid-November, the Teslin Tlingit Council sent a group of elders by bus and ferry to Juneau for a language summit called Voices of Our Ancestors. Speakers of three different Indigenous languages came together from Southeast Alaska, British Columbia, and the Yukon. The CBC's Claudine Sampson has more.
0: Why is our language hard to teach each other sometimes? What does it need to improve? My name is Fred White. I'm uh Tlingit. I'm a Thunderbird from uh, Dry Bay, the Elsac River area in the Gulf of Alaska. I'm the, considered the youngest fluent speaker of Tlingit. I am sixty-four years old years young we don't want any troubles to be among us sitting in there and working like what i'm doing right now i'm spontaneously translating the elders speaking in tlingit you know they're they're having a hard time it's it's a pretty sad situation like even myself um as fluent speakers, we hardly have anyone to speak with, converse back and forth with, you know, and it's it's a tough situation. You know, I was raised by my grandparents, Klingit um, being my first language, and um, I always went out and seek people that would speak Klingit, and I always kept losing them, and I kept losing them. And, <laughs> That's the way it's, it's been all this time I don't know how I could explain it and think it English I am concerned I see our, our language changing quite a bit today you know it's just like anything um, I a lot of research that I've done on our language I've seen a lot of uh, through the years we're living in a new world the world's changing. Technology, you know, a lot of different things are happening, and you know that's going to happen with our language. Our language is going to change. There's going to be new words for that we say in our language for different things that are happening. And, uh, but I don't think we'll ever go back to our traditional way of speaking. Um, that's just the way it is. It's kind of an emotional time for me right now you know thinking about that and and being here I, I just took a break and I was sitting there sitting back in the back there looking at the elders that we do have um, the best I can do is I go out and I comfort them and I speak to them and think it and a lot of the time I'm finding now too uh, when I speak to them Like the way I learned to speak, I don't get the replies that I thought I would get. So, you know, they're losing their language too. Maybe it's old age. You know, I don't know.
2: That was Fred White, one of the Tlingit language speakers who took part in the Voices of Our Ancestors Summit in Juneau, Alaska. That's it for this week's episode of Unreserved. We'll be back in this radio space next week for more community culture and conversation. This episode was produced by Zoe Tennant, Kyle Muzika, Stephanie Cram, and Anna Lazowski. Special thanks to Ruby Buiza, Ben Shannon, and Ann Penman this week. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. Thank you for listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I go say. It.